back to another episode of Bush School Uncorked. We are back in historic downtown Bryan at uh, our usual spot, downtown Uncorked. Um, we're doing a live recording. We have an excellent panel with us. And first, Greg's back. Yes, I have returned. Yeah, he was off doing administrator duties last time. I, I was indeed. Well, thanks for coming back. It's it's a pleasure to be back. <laughs> All right. So the topic for tonight is local governments and local governments as uh, engines of innovation, engines of innovation for governance. And we have an excellent panel to inform us on this. And I'm going to go around and I'm going to start with uh, Rob Greer to the left. And uh, Rob Why Greer. do you say to the left? No one on the podcast knows where anyone is sitting. It's going to be a long I'm Rob Greer, and I'm to the left, uh, assistant professor in the Bush School. I study state and local governments, uh, specifically financial management, uh, debt management, municipal securities, and lately water policy and infrastructure financing. Thank you, sir. Thanks for being here, Thank you. Hugh Walker. I'm a deputy city manager in Bryan. Been there a little over 24 and about 24 and a half years and have had an opportunity to watch a lot of things change in the city. Yeah, so, yeah I'm really excited to hear of some examples of things y'all have worked on in the city uh, throughout that process, because as when I arrived in 2014, that was kind of one of the big talks around the department and campus was the transformation Brian had gone through uh, over the past few years. Um, so excited to hear what some of that process is like. And thanks for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. And I'm Ann Bowman. I'm in the Bush School as well. I'm a professor. I teach state and local government courses, some environmental courses as well, and do a lot of research on those subjects also. And I am too. I'm glad to be here. Well, thanks for being here. This will, the audience may remember, be the second time uh, we've had Mrs. Greer and Bowman here and the second time together. On the I believe that was one of the top-rated podcasts, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was right. definitely in terms one of the top-rated five stars. Yeah, I give it five stars, wow. personally. Yeah, Greg, so it it came in after the hot takes. <laughs> True. Yeah. Okay, so I'd like to talk about local governments, and one thing we talked about uh, before we got rolling was kind of placing local governments in their general context of what they do and how they operate and why they have the flexibility or the opportunity to even be innovative. Um, so, who would like to take that first? I'm happy to. All right. There are two or three things I want to say, depending on how we count. First of all, I would start with, I hate to say it, but local governments are creatures of their states, so as a consequence, they have the powers that state governments give them. That is important to keep in mind as we talk about innovation. Some would argue that is a spur to innovation because if you don't have much discretionary authority, you've got to figure out cool, clever, new ways of doing things. So some would argue it's a spur to, to, to innovation. But the other thing to remember is that states vary in how much, they, how much power they give their local governments, right? So we're in Texas, probably we all know this. Uh, local governments are relatively, city governments at least, relatively empowered. Counties, not so much so. But uh, city governments in Texas enjoy home rule power which is a, in effect, power of local self-government. That doesn't mean the state won't intervene and stop a local government I, from doing something. I was going to, to say do. I can think of a few <coughs> examples. You can, you certainly can. 
Some and, here in Texas, even. Indeed. Indeed, yes. And, uh, well, it kind of depends on what that local government's doing, whether it raises the ire of state government or not. Like banning fracking, for yeah, example, within fracking the municipal... Or, or plastic bags yeah. or whatever, single-use plastic or bags. Or having a regi regimented purchasing process. <laughs> that's that's Which, reaching really far yeah. into local government <laughs> to, to regulate that. And that's exactly the case, that, that it varies by state as to how much they reach into local government on, and on what issues they do that. Um, and so I, I'm using the phrase local government just a reminder that there's several different types cities will be focusing on because, let's be honest, they're probably the most interesting of the of the types. I disagree. I know you would. I know. I apologize. Oh, we're going to be hearing about already, special districts. Already we're going we're going to <sighs> have some strong. controversy on the yeah. podcast. <laughs> yeah, That's counties, good. counties we won't be Hot talking takes. about. Hot takes on the counties. We will not yeah. be talking about. Oh, we're no, okay. No, not counties. School, school districts. districts. School districts is its own special topic. That's there, right. Yeah. Now we we've done we've actually covered that with, okay, with good. Laurie Taylor and good. And talked about the the school and Deborah Kerr and talked about school funding and all. Excellent. So yeah, that's a little bit of the yeah. Balance, so. Well, that's good. Right. So focusing on cities kind of makes sense. I guess I kind of round this out by saying that one of the reasons it's so important to focus on local governments and cities, particularly, is that they are I don't know the heartbeat of American government. It's where things happen. It's um, I mean it's local self governance is kind of a uh, sort of a cherished principle, if you will, not always observed, but it's certainly a principle in American government. And, and, and it's at the local level where, you know, the policies that are enacted really affect you on a daily basis, where the, uh, the problems are very immediate, where you can be shopping at HEB and run into your city council member. I mean, it's, it's a very close to you kind of personal uh, uh, government. And I try to run into them with my cart well, when I'm at HEB. Depends on, depends on where you, which district you live in sometimes. Uh-oh, that's, that's serious. Still in but, but, and I guess finally I would say that we will be talking, I'm sure, about, about some of the policies that local governments adopt, but we'll also be talking about some of the innovative administrative procedures and processes they develop and management uh, efforts that they have made over time. So I think we're ready to hear from Rob. Well, I, and why all of this was wrong. Well, yeah, I, exactly. I just, a county hero, I wanted to add additional context because the topic was local governments as tools for innovation. Uh, and you can't really talk about local government innovation without acknowledging that organizational form can itself be in innovation. When the state wants to solve a problem, one of their tools is just to create a new type of local government to solve that problem. Um, I, I will uh, leave whether that's successful, uh, that's a successful strategy or not. Give us, give us uh, an example. Uh, so we have an issue in Texas with managing our groundwater um, and making sure that we don't run out of groundwater. It's a, a primary source of drinking water in the state. Um, the state of Texas, to manage groundwater uh, rather than, than doing it themselves or, or telling local governments to do that, they created groundwater conservation districts that, that sit on top of existing local governments, following mostly county lines, but not all counties. So <laughs> there's course. significant holes in those maps, uh, and those districts are empowered with the ability to regulate wells, uh, well spacing, permitting, fees, 
into all sorts mm -hmm. of, of other things. Um, so rather than, than solve the problem um, through existing administrative functions or existing um, political sub-jurisdictions, they created an additional layer. Uh, we do this with, with uh, river authorities, we do this with downtown development districts, we do this with utility districts, we do, we do this with, mm -hmm. in some states, mosquito abatements, right? So there's all sorts of things that we create. Why, why not at mosquito elimination? Um, well, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't think. Uh, I think we get in trouble with PETA, maybe. I don't know. I don't know what the. I don't know who's advocating for mosquitoes. Right, right. Um, but but uh, we I'm just sure debate them. I'm sure somebody. We just gets. debate. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so is this a good thing? Well, that's a harder question to answer. There are there are a lot of problems with this system. Um, we essentially, uh, by design, create functional and organizational fragmentation. Um, where there there wasn't before, uh, which requires um, uh, all sorts of administrators to have to spend more time collaborating and coordinating their efforts uh, rather than, than focusing on, on a specific problem. Um, but there are advantages to them as well. A geographic scope for one thing, additional revenue streams for another, um, getting around some of those state rules that may apply to cities but not apply to special districts. Uh, and so, so they have some benefits and, and some costs. I think one of the one of the issues about special districts more generally, and then we can move on from this, this issue of transparency there, right? Because oftentimes they don't have the same reporting requirements that a local government does. Not to mention the citizens may not even be aware of them. Mm -hmm. Not to mention they don't elect the people that often are kind of running those uh, so, special districts. So I will, I will sort of correct you a little bit. Often if they do have elective wards uh, that, that govern, sometimes they're appointed, sometimes they're elected. Um, but but the, wa the water boards in Texas are appointed, right? Some of them. Oh, it differs from there are, board to there board? There are about eight different types of jurisdictions that are responsible for um, delivery of drinking water in Texas, and some of them do have some appointed positions on those boards, but um, but there are a, a, a majority elected uh, positions. So. Um, but yes, transparency is an issue. A lot of times citizen awareness of who is the political jurisdiction responsible for delivering any specific good or service. Um, and how many jurisdictions um, a person might be within at any given time uh, is something that they may not fully understand. And there is the other issue I would mention is that there is a question about whether it drives up the price of government or the cost of government by having these layered governments all, in effect, fishing out of the same fiscal common pool. So that is one more issue to be resolved. Excellent. All right. So. With a little bit of that, actually, I have one question, and before we move on, you mentioned home rule, mm -hmm. and that that gave cities maybe more power in general. Mm -hmm. And then we talked about how the states, how Texas, still kind of come in and intervenes mm -hmm. in different ways. What's the other choice to home rule, and what does that in general give the cities as like, like a from a power standpoint? Well, I mean, home rule. There are variations on home rule. The concept is just in effect local self-government. So it can be limited home rule. It can be expanded home rule kind of along that range. The antithesis of home rule is something called Dillon's rule, which basically gives the states all power. Whose rule? Dillon. Judge Dillon, the famous Dill, the famous, not Matt, uh, but uh, John Dillon from uh, Iowa, who in a court case about railroads basically said local governments have no power at all, and if there is a dispute over power, it should be resolved in favor of states. And so a number of states are, like an Alabama is considered kind of a strong Dillon's rule state where they don't empower their localities. 
Um, so that would be kind of the antithesis is that power is very closely held in the state capital. And, you know, a, a city in North Carolina, for example, wanted to regulate skateboarding on its streets, on city streets, and they had to get the legislature to enable them, you know, enact something, enabling, giving them the power to do that. And one might think that regulating skateboarding is something a local government ought to be able to do. I don't know. That's a lot of power. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. City government. If I remember state correctly, in, in Alabama, the municipalities, their budgets have to be approved through the mm -hmm. state legislature. Yeah. That, the right. annual budget yeah. goes right. to the state yes. legislature. Right. Yeah. I mean, in some cases, it's kind of pro forma. But if there's a, 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 a municipality they want to pick out to um, to pressure, they certainly right. can do that. Right. So, so in Texas, home rule, how much taxing power does that give to municipalities? Uh, well. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, what does that mean? rely heavily on property and sales. I'm sure we'll get into that. I mean, the legislature recently uh, pulled back the power of, of local governments to increase property taxes. Oh, so it's kind of like a tax, uh, a, um, a taxing limitation in effect. Um, so they are getting creative in how they're um, dealing with that lim potential limitation. Yeah, you. <laughs> yes, they are. <laughs> yes. And, and it wasn't so much the tax rate, but the tax yeah. revenue that's restricted. And so even as a community grows, it, it will impact, to some degree, the amount of revenue that you're able to bring in or increase because of the, the, the cap that they put on that. So could you explain what the cap is? It is now a 4% cap. Where in terms of total revenue? In t in, yes, for total revenue. So previously it was an 8% cap. Now we've gone down to 4%. Um, which includes, you're right, total revenue, um, and there's a, a provision that also addresses new growth, and so new growth is, is carved out of that. It's carved out it's of the carved out for okay. that first year, okay. but then the next year, of course, that new growth is no longer new growth, and then it's okay. included. So, okay. a so little that, complicated. So that means that if, at your existing tax rate, you're collecting more than 4% than you did last year, with new growth uh, parentheses off for a year, right? You have to reduce the tax rate because you're collecting too much revenue. Well, the tax rate could have to be decreased, yes, depending on the amount of revenue growth that you have because of evaluation and right, other factors. Right, right. So yes. So, wow. So wow. Yeah. The rule applied to revenue is really important. Uh, especially in Texas where we're seeing uh, a lot of growth in, in some right. areas and, and certainly in the, the Bryan Station area. Certainly in the Brazos Valley. In the Brazos right. Valley, right. And so without the city doing anything, just property values increasing right, right because right. of demand, right. that, that bumps up against the cap in some cases. Right. Right? Uh, and so the new growth um, being excluded doesn't, doesn't address, well, if, if you're just if property values property are just values going up. Going up. Yeah. Okay, so one of the things that I wanted to make sure we get to is some examples of local government being innovative. As Anne was mentioning earlier, is local government's really where most of the services that you enjoy on a day-to-day -day basis are provided. So they have to adapt maybe most quickly to changes in the local culture and local environment to continue to provide effective and uh, efficient services to the citizenry. So before we got together, I had asked you if he might think of a couple of examples during his time um, as deputy city manager and his time in Bryan that uh, might give us some flavor of innovations that government can 
can do at the local level, local level to provide better services, better quality, new services, different things that the citizens demand. So I was wondering if you, if you might be willing to maybe start us off with some example in particular that you like of something you've gotten to do that you felt was innovative and improved services and was a, was a benefit for the city. Sure, and, and it's, it's not something I did, it's something that the community did. So I think that's important to, to identify. And, and we're sitting in it, so that's downtown. I came here in 1995 when downtown was essentially boarded up. And so if you've been here long enough to know, downtown has gone through a quite a transition and it continues to go through that transition. We still have, the city actually owns property further north here uh, where there's green space essentially, uh, but real opportunity for additional growth. And, and that all came about through dynamic leadership from the city council. So was, again, we're talking about policy. Um, they decided they wanted to have downtown be what it used to be. Uh, so it used to be this vibrant place where people came and they shopped, and they spent time, they went to the movies and they dined here. This was really the, the center of the universe for the, the Brazos Valley, essentially. And that's what, back in the mid-90s, early 90s, that's what the city council wanted to see again. And I think most people would tell you it didn't happen overnight that the that downtown disappeared, essentially, that it closed up and was boarded up. And so that change wasn't going to occur overnight to re-energize it. Um, but the council was very diligent. Um, in about 2001, they approved a downtown master plan, which has really been the Bible for almost everything that's happened down here. So a real dynamic document that, that focused on retail and, and commercial and residential and how we can tie all those together, together. And in particular, also make sure that it's very pedestrian friendly. So it's really some place where people can gather and enjoy. It's a space that, that people can, can come as a family and, and, and other groups and, and really focus on you know, that quality of life sort of thing. So how, what, how does that, I know it's been a long process, but how do you even kind of get that ball rolling to say, you know, there's a lot of downtown, so I'm from rural Georgia, and you know, when I go back home and visit, you just see them everywhere. They seem like if just they had some innovative leadership, there's still a large enough population, there's still some resources, but then you go through downtown, and it's, you know, it, it never recovered from the early 80s, right, right? Right. So what types of things, I mean, how were you able to kind of get creative or innovative, or how was the city able to do those things? Is it creative financing structures that were provided by grants or by the state, or was it public-private partnerships with some of the local uh, businesses? Was it, you know, more city spearheaded? What were some of the kind of pieces of it that allowed it to get done, I guess? Well, in the end, it ended up being all those things to some degree, and the city, in my opinion, took the first step because I think from the private side, what they needed to see and what they needed to be assured of was the city was committed to bringing downtown back. And so we began with some infrastructure improvements and that was on Main Street initially, where we did four blocks of Main Street. And the first meeting that we had before we actually started construction, I was taken aback because I've lived in communities where those sort of projects are detrimental to the existing businesses. And they can kill a business because it's a long process to rebuild a street of, of, of that nature. And so we had that first meeting, and it was at City Hall, and I remember 
the engineers presenting this information and saying, we're going to have downtown Main Street, four blocks essentially closed for months, but we want you all aware of that. And nobody seemed to be excited, which just shocked me. Um, <laughs> it, it might have been an indication of how much we needed to well, revive downtown. It, it was either that or they just didn't know what that impact would be. Right. But I think you may be more, more on, on target. I think they realized this was important because during that entire process, and that was about a nine-month project, no one really ever complained. And so, you know, we, we got through that. And to see the improvements. Yes. And there are some businesses that, that certainly closed, um, but there are some that continue to be there to this day, some that have done even, you know, they've grown, a number that have grown. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that was, that was the first step, was seeing that the city was committed through infrastructure projects. And those have been phased in then over time, so we've done more infrastructure projects. But we've also now seen the growth in the private sector. And if they wouldn't have come back, our investment would have been for not. Um, but it was a huge first step for the city council to say, we're going to invest four or five million dollars just in this four blocks right here. Because that's, that goes back to the early 2000, late 1990. We're almost unheard of, um, but the council was willing to do that. And from that, things have really begun to materialize, as you very well see. So you have the private sector, they're coming back. But they can't do everything necessarily on their own. And so we've included some, some um, funds that uh, we match depending on what type of improvements they're going to make. So maybe life safety. So a building like this, as they go through a renovation process, may be required to put in a sprinkler system. Well, that's a cost that, for an old building like this, is just almost insurmountable. Mm -hmm. uh, but we partner with them, and we say, we'll help you pay for part of that. Where do you get that money? That is actually <coughs> city money. Uh, yeah. So that's, you know, that's, just, that's, just, tax, just, that's your tax just dollars. Just your tax work. dollars. Absolutely, yeah. The, the city, while we are fortunate enough to get some grant money, um, a lot of that is more focused on other areas, economic development and, and parks and those sort of things. Uh, not so much when it comes to revitalization. Uh, but we've been fortunate enough to have some funds available, um, facade grants as well. And so we want to make sure that downtown's attractive. And so the city council uh, passed a policy where we actually have some facade grant funding available. Does, does the city own the Queen, which is the movie theater? In it does downtown? not. That actually belongs to the Downtown Bryant Association. Oh, okay. So that's a nonprofit. Okay. Um, we did at one time own the, own the LaSalle Hotel. Okay. So we were one of the rare cities in not just the state of Texas, but in the nation that owned a hotel. Um, we got into it by default. Um, that hotel, much of the renovation was funded through the community development block grant. And so that would have been federal funding. And the developer at the time um, fell, he fell through. Yeah. And so we stepped in and finished the project and then managed the hotel for a number of years. But I think that hotel, that particular building, and there you can name several downtown, I believe, that were the catalyst for what really energized the change for the community. I love going to the Queen. Those, those I do classic too. movies. I do too. Oh, so, Hewitt, it sounds like um, to get it started was a pretty big risk that the city took, right? If you invest five, six million dollars on street renovations um, in a failing downtown that continues to fail, then that's five or six million dollars that you could have been using somewhere else in the city, right? Absolutely. Um, and, and it paid off 
for you and that is great. I'm really happy that we're here and able to, to sort of benefit from that. Um, can you talk about the discussion around that risk and taking taking those risks? A lot of things, a lot of times cities are hesitant to, to take that risk, especially right. when it's that level of financing for capital projects um, that, that may or may not turn out. There were a number of, I'll use the word discussions, that occurred <laughs> over a period of really, it was probably not months, but years in order to get us there. Again, I came in 1995. That effort started back in probably about 1992, 1993, and one of the first projects was the Palace Theater, which is now an open-air theater. Before that, it was a movie theater, but now it's an open-air theater that the city owns, so we do own, own that particular mm -hmm. one. Um, so those discussions started years before we actually saw a huge capital project, which would have been the downtown you know, Main Street. So that, that, that took a long time to get there, and those discussions included the pros and the cons, and, and certainly the funding part of it is, is very typical for any sort of government project because funds are going to be involved, right? Um, and you also have to take into account that those folks, there are going to be folks that are absolutely against it. And there were. There were folks that wondered what we were doing. Why would we throw four or five million, six million dollars at a downtown project for a downtown that, that boarded up? Um, you can go back and watch a, a video back in 1990 of um, oh, the Lyle Lovett song. Lyle Lovett, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, this old porch. Yeah, this old porch, and, and, and the town was completely, completely boarded, boarded up. up. Yes, and and he walked downtown with a professor from Texas A&M yep. who declared it dead and said yep. it would never come back. And so you had those sort of conversations that were going on, and a city council that wanted to do something different, they wanted to do something big and, and bring life to downtown. And so there were a lot of debates, if you will, that occurred over a period of literally years before there was a, a real change and a decision made to move forward with an infrastructure project. So you're absolutely right. It's 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 a not an easy process, and sometimes even longer than you might imagine. So can we talk about the case study we did together? Sure. Yeah. So I got to interview Hugh and the broader City of Bryan team and some researchers at Texas A&M to talk about some self-driving trolleys. They were one of the first cities to uh, have a partnership of this type, where they had self-driving trolleys actually uh, on. Um, City Roads, so tell us a little bit about that project. Well, that one started, uh, well, I'm trying to remember how far back we go, two years? Is that about right? Seems right, yeah. yeah. About two years ago, um, when self-driving vehicles were still just this discussion, and our mayor is, is one of those real innovators. He, he loves uh, technology, and he, he loves being one of the first to, to embrace it. So. Uh, we, we should say this is not an endorsement of the mayor. We are in the midst of an election campaign. The Bush School takes absolutely no stance on the, on the Brian mayoral race. Please, please continue. Nor does staff. Nor City staff. Yeah, right, 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 it's, right. Just, it's just what happened. That's all right, I'm right. stating what happened. Right. Um, because it was him and the council. They, they thought this would be a cool project. And so fortunately, um, A&M also was very excited about this project. 
and they were pushing, I believe, very hard to be the first city in Texas to have a self-driven uh, vehicle. We ended up being, I think, the third city in Texas, so we were in really good company. Uh, city of Plano was, I believe, the first, if not the city of Arlington, I forget who had the, the first one, but we were one of the top three. We were the top three. Um, so it was a, a process, though, that took uh, working with A&M and through their processes and then through our engineering processes and making sure that we had a, an environment, a safe environment, a loop that would allow um, for such, such an adventure. Um, because, again, it's, it's self-driven, um, but it's, you still don't know what's going to happen, right? Um, and A&M, fortunately, they have taken all the safety precautions and the steps, uh, so they're the ones that actually are the ones are responsible for the vehicle. Um, we were responsible for the layout and, and determining a, a, a route for them. And it was a, a several month process. Once again, one of those things that didn't happen overnight. Um, that's one of the reasons we weren't the first city in Texas, but uh, I'm sure the others had the same sort of struggles that we did. But uh, fortunately, because of that partnership, that strong partnership with A&M, uh, we were able to forge ahead and ended up with um, two self-driving uh, vehicles. Yeah, I got to see them. The, uh, the lead researcher is uh, Srikant Sarapay. Work closely with the city as well. Right, Paul Casper was a city yep. engineer who was really yep. involved. I got to chat with Paul about uh, about kind of the, the different types of uh, problems that the city needed to take on and how we we're going to share responsibilities for who was responsible for what, and then even things like like I didn't think about, which is where do you park the cars? Where do you park the trolleys when they're right. not being used? Was something right. that had to be like sorted through. And, and, and that's a great point because that's another partner. So that's Brazos Transit. Uh, they have the downtown parking garage, and and they graciously offered space for us to park and charge, to be able to charge two different vehicles. So Brazos Transit is a county. No, it is actually it's it's a state. It's a, it's a federal. It's a federal entity. Federal entity. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So they are uh, mostly funded through federal dollars. And the Brazos Transit has a, a very large area that they cover. And they actually operate the trolley system in Galveston, so it's a they cover a, a large area of the woodlands, the boats on the yeah. on the uh, the water there. They operate those as well, the taxis, the boat taxis. Oh wow! Yeah. So that goes back to one of your. I'm not sure it's a special district. I'm not exactly sure what so you I, call it. I'd have to double check. I want to say, though, it is a state entity that gets federal funding. You could be right. I don't think it's a federal entity. I think it's a, it's a state special district that receives mm -hmm. uh, federal funding for, for operations. I'll take that definition. I, I don't, I'd have, I'll have to double I think check. You're right. So the Brazos Transit District extends from Galveston to Bryant. So this is one of the benefits. And includes the woodlands. This is yes. one of the, wow. the, the stated benefits of special districts is that they're not limited to existing, existing boundaries, boundaries of political subjurisdictions, that they can they can encompass whatever makes sense for their for their purpose, right? So we only have two examples, and and maybe uh, Ann and Rob, you could jump in on this, uh, or Hugh as well, since they're, they're also your examples. But I, I noticed a few things that if we're, if we're talking about strategies for how local governments could be innovative and be successful that maybe we could tease out, which are things like partnerships, and that's partnerships across like sectors with the private sector, but different levels of government with the county, with the state. Um, so partnerships being one, finding different types of funding and being like a first mover kind of sets the, uh, sets the expectations for the private investors to have something that they can build around, seeing some level of 
stability. There's like a strategic plan and putting years long efforts into some of these and building out the plan and the networks, um, kind of looking for opportunities, things that, the, that might be innovative and interesting. What other types of things help um, cities be innovative and be innovative successfully and deal with some of the risks and hazards that that Rob mentioned earlier, are there general like strategies or other cases that anyone's uh, aware of? Well, we have a we have a you mentioned strategic plans. We have a comprehensive plan, mm -hmm. which is a very public process to get through a, the end game of that particular product, and so it requires a great amount of public input, okay. as well as stakeholders. So there's town hall meetings, there's public meetings, there's um, individual meetings with different stakeholders throughout the community to develop this plan. And, and most cities have that. Most cities have a, a comprehensive plan of some sort, similar to A&M. You know, you've got a strategic plan that's... In our departments in the yeah. school. So. And they're all extremely valuable documents. <laughs> Well, Did you just volunteer to be on the strategic planning committee? Did I hear that? Is that on record? Unfor that? Unfortunately, I'm always on oh, okay. the strategic planning committee. Ours is actually a document we use. <laughs> well, that would make it uh, in the minority, strategic plans. But we refer to it um, on a regular basis. It also includes the transportation and the thoroughfare plan. And so as you have developers that come in and want to rezone or develop something, you need to look at the comprehensive plan to see how that all fits together. And again, the thoroughfare plans included in there to see if the roadway systems are going to match up and align, if we need to change those. So it's not unusual for us to actually end up taking to the city council an amendment to the comprehensive plan um, as we change the thoroughfare plan. And so it's a dynamic document uh, that we use on a regular basis and at some point in time, usually it's about every 10 years, you upgrade those or do a completely new one. So it, it, for us, um, it's an important document that, that was developed through all sorts of public feedback and input, as well as stakeholder uh, feedback and input. So it's, a, again, a, a, long, that's a year to a year and a half to develop one of those. How normal is that, Ann and Rob, that, that a strategic plan for a city really is a guiding document for for the way public policy gets implemented? Yeah, I would say it varies. Um, uh, I mean, I'm glad to hear that it, it does play that role. Usually you don't hear the, the comment, well, that can't be done because it's not in the plan. Right. right. That, that doesn't happen. I mean, typically it's how can we adjust the plan or how can we just put the plan aside and move ahead. I mean, I, w I was really thinking about the, while well, he was talking about the proactive nature of something like that, which sort of, which, you know, obviously makes sense, you know, thinking ahead, as opposed to what so many cities get caught in, which is reaction. And reaction simply to event, to a problem, to a new challenge they hadn't foreseen, and uh, then kind of struggling to get caught back up. So the city isn't really first mover, the city's kind of reacting uh, in that way. So it sounds like one innovation is having a plan. Using it. <laughs> well, so I, yeah. I will say most, See, I have plans. most organizations have the plans, yeah, it's just the right? Uh, yeah. and, and sometimes yeah. it's in the charter, in the designated route, you have to have a plan, right. right? Or you have to do one every five years or whatever the case is. And what you're trying to avoid is it being done and then stuck mm -hmm. in a drawer, and then whenever yeah. you have to uh, revise it, you pull it out and dust it off and, and, and do it again. Um, to, 
it's a great point. I, I don't know, I don't have any statistics on how many have them and are using them. Um, I will say as a class project, my public management students look into strategic planning processes for a variety of public organizations, uh, and they find mixed results. Some are as successful as Brian, and a lot aren't. Um, but, but the planning process itself can take many forms, right? So having a comprehensive strategic plan that then coordinates several sub-plans, like a transit plan or, or a capital improvement plan or, or anything like that, um, is, is maybe a little bit more rare than having those individual plans for a department be very active in updated documents, right? So public works may have their own capital improvement plans that are, are regularly used, they just don't integrate with a overall citywide or regionwide strategic plan. Um, um, and so transit may have theirs, and, and public works may have theirs, and the you know, water utility may have theirs. Uh, and it's really whether they, they talk to each other and then whether they are part of the larger budgeting process or, or integrated in any meaningful way that's really less common, I, in my humble opinion. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And to some degree, they don't don't always talk well together. Right. Um, fortunately for us, you mentioned parks plan. Well, that's part of the comprehensive plan. Then. So those are all those are all tied together. CIP is a different document. So we have to really make sure that we are connecting it mm -hmm. to the comprehensive plan, which is more of an effort. Right. And if you don't focus on that, yeah, it, sometimes things slip through the cracks. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Um, something else that we are somewhat. You know, this is for all organizations. So you mentioned it's nice to be proactive, and that's what one thing that a comprehensive plan can do. Um, but technology is so difficult to keep up with. Um, one example I can give you is body-worn camera cameras. That that wasn't on anybody's roadmap, I don't think, um, until all of a sudden we need body-worn cameras, and that's a very expensive process. You know what I think would be a really great idea is if you had a lot of technological needs and then you had a whole team running. You had a whole team of Texas A&M students to help you figure out what those technological needs are. That and stay would calm. be awesome. I think that would be a great idea. You volunteering? Could, could, could we do a capstone project like that? <laughs> well, let's start, let's start with one. We should start with one. Let's start we with one. That, yeah. We should. We should do that. That's a great thing. What do you think, John? <laughs> You think it's a good idea? I guess it's what he can look at. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if we can find a deal without it, all the students. I don't know. We've got to find students who'd be interested. Yeah, that's crazy. Interested. John's the, the student lead on the project, so we have to bring him in. <laughs> I think um, that highlights kind of the balance between different types of plans, being iterative. I think them being a live document is something um, that's, uh, that's really important. Do you have, so you've got maybe two, do you have any other examples of innovation that we might discuss? Other examples. Um, remind me some of those that were on my list. Ooh. <laughs> we all saw the list. Yeah. yeah. So does the self-driving trolley, was that just a, like a one-off or does it still operate? It still operates. It's uh, based on student schedule for the most part. Um, I think, and it's a limited schedule, very limited, so I can't tell you exactly what that schedule is, but usually it's uh, over the lunch hour on Monday okay. through Friday. Okay. And they do still have, just, I mean, I kind of they do still have two people in the front seats 
So they have uh, one person who's kind of keeping up with the equipment and one person who can hit the brake. Just in case. Just in case. But the trolleys, I think, never go over about 15 miles an hour. That's correct. Uh, right. Um, so they, they just kind of ease along. So, so a driven trolley would entail one person. But a self-driving trolley <laughs> That's right. two and, people yeah. to manage. Okay. And you know, last I got season, it. I got season, it. We were worried about uh, AI and automation taking over jobs. Yeah. It was just creating more. It's it's great. Yeah. Okay. All good. Yeah. More innovation. It is more innovation. Yeah. So, I, I, I was going to jump in because uh, the way you framed the, the question, um, in addition to the strategic planning process, I was just wanted to, to circle back to the risk issue. And so one of the things that uh, can be a barrier to innovation and adoption of, of new technologies or, or really anything um, can be the level of risk that a single entity is willing to take on. Uh, and so a lot of these collaborative agreements, whether it's between a public and a private entity or two public entities or, or multiple or nonprofits involved, is some version of risk sharing, right, or risk offloading. Um, and so that may be financial risk, it may be some version of political risk, it may be um, uh, about, about the infrastructure project itself, uh, but, but if you're talking about, about being innovative and ways to increase innovation, finding these partnerships that you are not all in, and if it fails, you fail spectacularly, but, but having a series of partners to help offset some of this risk along the way can be, can be one uh, strategy. So I think you know, what would be really helpful for the listeners is if you wrote a paper. If I wrote a paper? Yeah, then you called it Managing Risks. Oh, okay. Would you like to be a co-author on that paper, Justin? co-author on that paper. Okay. <laughs> Self so there's, there's way too much log rolling going on in this yes. podcast. So, so let me. So so this is all. Site bullet career in O'Toole, 2009. PPMG paper on that. Okay. So great. this is this is this is all really too disgusting. Uh, Hugh, how often does the state of Texas come to you and say you can't do that? Boy, not too often. It's because really? you're not Austin. I mean, that's why. Right. Or, yeah. Um, yeah. They just usually, you know, we know we know the parameters that mm -hmm. they've established for us, and so we try to work within those. Yeah. We try to be creative, but we try to work within those. So seldom do they come to us and say, "No, you can't do that." Um, seldom do they come to us and say, "You shouldn't have done that either." So we're we're pretty good about staying within the the boundaries of the coloring book. But but Ann, you indicate there are municipalities in Texas that sure. do get the state of Texas that telling them they can't well, do yeah. that more often. Right. I mean, the obvious one is Austin simply, why? Because it's Austin, because it's there, it's a left-leaning, it, uh, some might say cutting edge kind of place where um, it didn't declare. Some might say a weird place. Might so I've heard that before. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, um, yeah, I mean things like the single-use uh, uh, plastic bags would be would be an example. I mean, it's something that Austin was concerned. It, the leadership in Austin was concerned about that issue. They enact um, an ordinance to basically um, structure that and make it much more difficult. Charge a fee, and the, and the legislature said you can't do that. Or they want to become a sanctuary city, although they call themselves a freedom city, not a sanctuary city. 
you can't do that. But that's, um, that's I mean, the whole sanctuary city thing right, is that, kind of weird. Right. Uh, well, I don't know. What it's, the status it's, it's, of that yeah, is. I mean, it's, but the plastic right. bags is real. Plastic I mean, bags that, is real. Right. You know, uh, regulating electric scooters is real. Right. Regulating Uber and Lyft is another real right. one. Airbnbs, I mean, all right. those kinds of things. And so they really have a very different perspective on that issue. And you may have heard what the, I guess, still current Speaker of the House said about what he was going to do to local governments in the next legislative session, which is basically put them in the crosshairs. On um, the other hand... The right. Speaker of the House will well, not no, be exactly. in the next legislative exactly. session. That's very true. But, I mean, Austin oftentimes comes to mind when, they th when, when you think about a city that's really moving in a different direction from where legislators are. I, I actually think go. of Denton. Right. At least for which, fracking. Which, which, which had a fracking ban, sure. and then the state legislature came in and said, oh, no, municipalities cannot right. ban fracking, right. fr fracking within the municipal uh, borders. I, you know, for a state, and, and here I'll go, I'll, I'll go, uh, I'll go opinionated, but for, for a state that constantly says that the federal government shouldn't tell us what to do because, you know, local control, right. it is very interesting that the, that the state legislature is quite willing to intervene yep. on local with local municipalities when the municipality does something that the state legislature doesn't like. I mean, one argument would be that the relationship between the national government and the states is a federal relationship, so the states do have, you know, do, do hold, do possess power, and that the relationship between states and local governments is different. But you're right. I mean, a lot of states do the same thing. I mean, they basically complain about the federal government, sue the federal government, but yet turn right around and impose mandates on local governments regularly. Un and unfunded mandates, Yeah, unfunded right? mandates, or they preempt local governments from taking action. So, yeah, they behave very much like the federal government does. Right. So that was my point. Local yeah. control is only good until it gets past the state level, exactly. uh, in yeah. which case it is no longer good. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 you know, the other interesting thing is there are a number of folks in the state legislature who used to be on city councils. Mm -hmm. They were mayors, they were on city councils, they were in commissioner's <laughs> courts. But once you get to Austin and start making rules for the whole state, you begin, you, that, that seems to fade. I mean, there's been some research on this done at the congressional level about members of Congress who were in state legislatures and how quickly they shed that cloak once they get to Congress. Is there something about a swamp? Or yeah, was that a swamp? swamp yeah, yeah. I think oh, I was, yeah, to, that To balance was. out the yeah. current uh, tone of the conversation, I will say that in there, there is an argument to be made that states uh, can be innovators themselves sure. and help solve problems that local governments, because they are concerned about a smaller jurisdiction, smaller uh, level of, of solving a problem, solving something like flooding in South sure. Texas is very difficult for a single right. jurisdiction to take on. Um, and so the state... And, and it's a funding issue. And, and I mean, no, 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 single, no single municipality can get the money to solve a, a, a flooding issue in South Texas. Right. And so if you look across the country, you'll find examples of states being innovators to solve these larger scope problems, um, whereas local governments um, may not be able to, to solve those on, on their own, right? So it's not that states are always bad or the instances of, of innovation. I'm thinking of the argument for innovation for doing away with a, <laughs> with a single-use bag. <laughs> <laughs> That's not the type yeah, I mean, of large-scale right. problem that I right. had in mind. The, the, the single-use bag is an yeah. interesting case, but more for principle than actual yeah. what is it impact. Called, what is it called when you do it on social media? Value signaling? What is it? I think that's something. I don't know. 
So um, uh, we're almost done, but I did want to one more thing on C's. We talked about um, the relationship between risks and innovation, and I think risks often maybe drive the need for innovation. So what types of, uh, open to anyone, but what types of risks in general, I mean, we talked about the risk to, uh, main, to spending a decent amount of money uh, redoing Main Street, but kind of maybe broader, what kind of issues, risk issues, do we see cropping up for cities now and in the near future? What types of things are cities dealing with from a risk standpoint? Well, I'd say the, the immediate one that comes to mind are the variety of environmental risks. The, right? resili the resiliency. It is, it is hard to ignore the effects of uh, environmental risk, especially when we're watching California and deal with the severity of wildfires they're currently dealing with. Um, and so whether it's wildfires fires or flooding or tornadoes or sea level rise, right, these environmental risks um, are only getting worse and more frequent. Um, and we're seeing, we're getting signals from, uh, on the financial side, from uh, actors like credit rating agencies that are saying, if insurance you're not, companies. insurance companies, if you're not paying attention to these risks, if you're not preparing, right, thinking of long-term planning, if you're not preparing for these risks, if you're not doing things to become more resilient, then you're a higher financial risk, you're, right? We're, we're going right. to signal to investors, right, be, pay and, attention. And your bonds will cost more, right. exactly. and thus your taxes will go up. Exactly. Well, and we've been fortunate in that regard, so the ISO rating, which is the insurance rating, um, so on a scale of 1 to 10. What, one, what does ISO mean? Insurance Service Organization. Okay. I think it's what it's called, so don't quote me on that, but it's something like Sorry, that. Sorry, you're already yeah, quoting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let me retract that. I don't know what it's called. Um, the rating is 1 to 10, and 1 is the best. And recently, the City of Bryan received the 1 rating, and that ties into infrastructure improvements, including uh, water, so that you have uh, the availability to fight fires, but then it also really touches on your fire department mm. and it being creative and innovative and, and providing all the necessary training. So, you know, talking about risk, um, you can address some of those, you can't address all of them. That's right. Um, and, and certainly, cost, is, again, comes into play there. Uh, but we've gone from, ah, we might have been a four or five at one point to where over a period of time we went from that to a three to a two to, to now a one. And that means your borrowing is uh, cheaper? That it does. It has an impact there. Um, and ideally it also impacts your insurance rates as a, as a homeowner. Right. Right. Huh. right. Individual property uh, insurance. Um, and I, and it would have to uh, have to talk about trade-offs because there's there's always trade-offs here, right? And so when we're when we're thinking about risks uh, and we're thinking about how you become more resilient towards risks uh, in Texas specifically, we have these inherent trade-offs where you can do something, you can spend a lot of money to become more resilient towards um, what the last disaster was, which which may have been droughts, um, and do nothing about the current disaster, which is flooding. Um, or you can spend a lot of money to become more resilient towards flooding, um, knowing that next year you may not see any rain and you may be subject towards droughts, right? Uh, and so you, it's, it's difficult from a municipal perspective to be resilient towards everything. Right. Um, but that's what investors seems, want. Seems to, me, <laughs> seems to me floods are more damaging than droughts for, for a municipality. 
Um, maybe until you unless run you're out in of California. Water. Yeah, unless you're in yeah. California. Well, unless you're in California, yeah. right? Or, wildfires, or yeah. you have significant agricultural needs um, for right. watering your crops or right. providing water. For but that's industrial but uses. is that a municipality issue? Or? A lot of times it can be yeah. if you're municipal-owned water uh, sources or right. water providers. Yeah. And then there's one other risk that I've, I've just got to touch on that wasn't even on anybody's radar screen until two or three years ago. And that's cyber. Cyber oh, risk. Oh right. Um, and and the cost to address that. So any government, any entity, as far as that goes, if you go back far enough, we didn't even have computers, right? So that wasn't a cost. And now our IT staffing that and, and funding that is one of the higher uh, funded departments within an organization. Has, has the city of Bryan been subject to cyber attack? We have. Yeah, it was um, social engineering. And what was the what was the outcome? Um, we lost um, a couple hundred thousand dollars, but we recovered nearly six hundred thousand dollars of that. And one of the reasons we were able to do that, um, we were circumstantial. Um, we happened to have a detective with the city of Bryan who was previously in the banking industry and understood how to track money. And so this was this was a hostage situation. They they the 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 the, the cyber attacker took possession of city records? They city. actually, uh, was social engineering is what they did. And mm. so they contacted staff, um, asked to have the way that certain funds uh, were paid to a vendor changed. And we went through a process and made that change. And then we got a call from the real vendor who said, I'm not getting paid I'm not anymore. getting paid, yeah. yeah. And mm. so um, our detective was able to track that down and recover most of the funds. Okay. Which, which um, as we read and hear about other organizations, whether they be public or private, almost never happens. Right. Um, but again, uh, very fortunate there. And he was involved in making an arrest in Atlanta uh, because he was instrumental in solving that particular crime. Promote this guy. Yeah, really. Yeah. <laughs> he, he is good. No. He's really good. So before we go, I want to go to the audience. And did you have any of the, any risks that you wanted to toss in the bucket that uh, makes weird? Yeah, I guess the risk. I would is much more amorphous, but it's the risk of just kind of rising demands among the public and the expectations of government to solve problems and. Um, you know, something that is an individual issue for you can be promoted to become an issue citywide potentially and I think that's that's always a challenge for local governments to try to anticipate and uh, respond when that happens which ones are you know which ones of these demands um, are, are viable and should be responded to and which can be safely ignored I mean we get into questions of political risk but you know is there the leadership to do something with that I, I just think that's a that's that's a challenge, a continuing challenge. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much. We'll see if our audience haven't said any our questions. Our vast, uh, the vast crowd that has come Ooh, to the just whole there are hundreds here. I know you can't see I on know. the podcast, but just so many people came out to see. Spilling uh -huh. out into the streets exactly. of Bryan. Uh -huh. Questions? Yes. Last spring, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo came to speak with us and. There's a question asked about the United States withdrawing from the Paris Climate Accords, and his response was interesting. He said that allowing the United States to withdraw gives cities the opportunity to have innovation and create their own climate action plans. Um, do you agree with this approach? If 
So how is this helpful for cities to create their own climate action plans? Is it innovative, or do you think the United States should be taking out this from a national approach? So the, the question is that uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo came down to, to the Bush School uh, last semester? It was, I think, March. March of, of, of this year. And uh, one of the justifications for the criticisms raised about the United States withdrawal from the Paris Climate Accords is Secretary Pompeo said, well, this frees up cities to be much more innovative in, in dealing with climate issues on their own. Was that just the eyewash? Was that just the eyewash? Boy. Yeah, I mean, cities are already taking the lead on this. I mean, there are, what, how many hundreds of cities belong to the International Climate Change Group? I mean, so cities are making tremendous efforts in that regard, but the problem is there are city-led efforts that are not uh, you know, necessarily sweeping the country, uh, and as a consequence, the impact is very limited. Yeah, I, I would say it's very much a, a second best yeah. type of uh, solution to the problem. Just just like uh, earlier we talked about cities not being able to handle things, uh, certain problems that the state uh, then steps in and, and provides some leadership on. Uh, well, climate change is not something cities can yeah. solve by themselves. States cannot solve by themselves. Countries have to you know. step mm -hmm. up and, yeah. and, and provide leadership. And, and, and countries can't solve by themselves. And countries can't solve by themselves. That's exactly right. And so, uh, but the, the lower that you devolve that responsibility, authority, and, and power, uh, the more fragmented the mm -hmm. response becomes. Um, and so I think we can find plenty of examples of cities taking very strong leadership roles, and we can point out and, and give them, um, sort of commend them for, for doing that. Um, but I, I don't think that's a great justification for the U.S. not also providing leadership in that area. Yeah. Hugh, does, does Brian have a climate change plan? No, we do not. And I'm going to defer back to Rob. I think he's right on target. Smaller, mid-sized cities, that's something that we just, we don't have the expertise. Right. And so we defer frequently to the state when we get calls of, the, of those natures. And so we, we depend on the state. Uh, Texas Commission on Environmental Quality is one of their departments who works closely with the EPA, uh, which is the national side of, of things. And so for something like that, we would defer to them. And I would think most cities our size would probably do the same thing. Um, Houston is going to be an exception. Dallas, Fort Worth, those sides of cities would be an exception. And, and so I think absolutely it becomes a, a much larger problem than a smaller or mid-sized city can handle. So Pompeo's argument was a global coordination problem should be sent down to local cities in the U.S.? Yeah. That was the argument? Yeah. Think so, globally, act locally, right? That's sort of which, which again is <coughs> problematic in Texas um, when you might want to start thinking about ways to reduce carbon emissions. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then you have the example that Greg brought up of the city of Denton trying to do just that with their tracking uh, and the state disallowing that type of action. Uh, cities can only, they are, as Anne started the conversation with, they are creatures of the state. They can only do what the state allows them to do. Um, and if the state will not allow them to act in certain ways, they are unable to solve those types of problems. Here at, uh, here at Bush School and Court, our motto is actually think global, drink global. <laughs> it's a better approach. Yeah. I think we had at least one more question. Yes, sir. I'm more of a technology person. So my question is, so you, you all came up with this idea of redoing Brian, which is great, I think. I've lived here for 30 years, so it's amazing. And 
So I want to know whether there's any mechanism to share knowledge, like best practices, what works, what doesn't, lessons learned across different cities, maybe in Texas, so that you learn from each other? Oh, absolutely. So the question is, uh, are there uh, data sets or, or, or collected cases of uh, innovation done well um, in, a, in a local city, particularly in Texas, as some examples? So, yes, we belong to different organizations. So the city belongs to the Texas Municipal League as well as the National <laughs> League of Cities. So that's one way to share information. Um, individually, we belong to associations as well, such as the Texas City County Management Association, the International City County Management Association. And then departments also belong to, and individuals and departments belong to different associations. So networking and sharing, information sharing is absolutely key for us. Um, seldom, it does happen every now and then, but seldom do we create our own document, right. uh, our own policy. Um, if we're going to do, enter into a contract, we go out and we beg, borrow, or steal from someone else, not necessarily just in Texas even. Um, we, we have counterparts across the nation that we rely on and, and use for information and information sharing. Just as they call us, we call them. And so for almost anything that we work on, there's somebody else that's already done it. And we want to learn from them first before we make the wrong step. And then um, we, we implement the policy based on what we've been able to gain from our peers. Being able to access best practices is just so important, whether Absolutely. it's at the university level, the municipal level, any, any level. Well, and let me put a plug there as well. Texas A&M is a tremendous resource for us as well. You're um, welcome. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, because we rely on so many different departments there, too. Um, if we have a question, it's not unusual for us to start there with um, making a, a phone call, an email, or stopping in a visit with somebody. And I'll just say, sort of from, from the academic literature perspective, there's been a lot done on innovation diffusion and policy diffusion and how best practices are spread from one type of state or city to, to another. Um, and oftentimes it takes a policy entrepreneur, it takes somebody who, who takes point on something um, and then um, you go to a conference and you, you spread the good news of how the best, you know, we're doing this great thing, it's saving us a ton of money, or our citizens are really happy with this, this new outcome, um, and then it's up to the innovative cities and leadership to say, hey, we can do this better than we've been doing it, and adopt those policies, and they spread by, you know, person to person, city to city, um, through these types of, of networks of, of individuals. And they spread not only horizontally, like you're describing, but also vertically to states, the state level. There's a really good study of anti-smoking policies um, that, that started at the city level and then moved to the state level. So even someday, the federal level. So. Well, that's that's the classic model, yeah. too, right? The states are supposed to serve as this policy mm -hmm. laboratory, right? right, where the best ideas get circulated and adopted mm -hmm. at the federal level. I don't know what Sometimes. the most recent uh, research would say about the success of that model. But I don't know. Just yeah, ask me in a couple of years when we're talking about recreational marijuana nationwide. Right, right. right. Then, we'll, then we'll know. It's started at the states. That's for sure. <laughs> Thanks so much. It's been an hour. Can for an hour and one minute, so we will be respectful of your time and close out this evening. Thanks to the audience for the questions. The hundreds, the hundreds uh, here. The hundreds, yeah. Uh, thousands, thousands of downtown important. Of the firehouse. So the uh, appropriate number to show up <laughs> to be a respectable crowd. So our next live recording will not be till the beginning of December. 
uh, I believe it's December 3rd is when we record again. But in the meantime, we may be uh, pushing out some episodes. We might movies. we might do a hot takes. Yeah, there's plenty. Takes. There's there's plenty. There's plenty in the news. We, both, we managed to avoid international issues. There are still things internationally going on since last week. One or two. And I don't think impeachment stopped yet since our last event. Either. As far as I know, it's still going on. We have some things on top of our exciting local governments to discuss. So we will. Maybe hey. hot takes on the Brian Mayoral election by then. When is, yeah. when is the when is the election date? Next uh, Tuesday. Yeah, next Tuesday. The All first right. the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November, which is the election date in America. <laughs> really? Yeah. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Thanks, Ed. Glad you're back. Man. I'm so happy to be back, Justin. <laughs> and we will see you soon. And, we'll, and and thank you to our friends at Downtown Uncorked. Definitely. Always good.